0: Well, good evening everyone and welcome to our digital campus and the nightly broadcast. We are glad that you are here Mm -hmm. and I hope that you all are finding this an exciting time. If you weren't awake already, I hope the line dance music got you moving. I don't know what to do with our media department, Uh, Desi. we've, We've got some rambunctious youngsters run in that area of our department mm-hmm. they uh,
1: i i happen to know a little secret that a certain member of our team as much as he squawks about it doesn't actually mind all country music so i don't no, I, I don't i don't music doesn't really bother you as much as you might let no,
0: times. no it doesn't it doesn't match my persona but i uh, i find it both amusing and um I find country music tells a story probably better than any other kind of music, and I like story, so that's that's where my weakness comes. Go. Well, welcome, everybody. We're glad you're here, and in case you haven't figured it out yet, tonight is Wednesday night Bible study, and uh, we're happy to have yep. our connections pastor, Brother Desi, with us. He's going to be bringing you the Bible study, but before we turn to that, real quick, let me remind you. First of all, don't forget about our website. In this time where we cannot be together, newarkupc.info Absolutely. is absolutely essential. You've got to stay current with it. You've got to stay connected with us there. You can submit prayer requests, praise reports, participate in contests, give all kinds of things at that website. So don't forget newarkupc.info. And speaking of newarkupc.info, Desi, I think you just put up a poll or a survey that's kind of important. You want to tell folks real quick about
1: that? I did. In fact, I'll share my screen because I had it pulled up. So let me do that real quick. Before we get into tonight's broadcast, if you go to our church website, this poll went live last night. If you saw Tuesday evening's broadcast, you saw that we talked about, well, that was last night's broadcast. We talked, I made an announcement talking about small groups and where we're at with small groups and why at this time. During phase two, we do not feel that it's in our best interest to go ahead and resume them in person. And in addition to that, I mentioned that there would be a survey on our church website. So if you go to newrqpc.info, right here, right in front, you will see this in-person service survey. This went live last night, late last night, and it's very quick. It is anonymous. That is on purpose we want you to submit your feedback. We want you to be very honest with us, and we, we don't need to know who. We just kind of need to get a temperature gauge of where people are. The results of this survey are not going to be what makes the final decision, but it's very helpful to the pastoral team. Please pray for us as we're working during this time to figure out what to do and when we should resume in person. I will make one other quick note that if you took this survey last night, I saw a handful of people this morning when I signed in, had taking the survey. I did make a couple minor tweaks to the question to clarify them. And I added two questions at the end of the survey. So if you took this survey before 10 30 AM today, Eastern standard time, I would encourage you to go back. You may want to take the survey again, but there's 11 questions on here. Most of them are yes, no, maybe questions. And then down at the bottom, you will see one, how ready are you to resume in-person church services? So this is what we added today. We would love to have all your feedback after you fill this out. You can click on here and there's four different options. I won't give it all away to you right now. You'll have to go to the website to do so.
0: All right. Thank you, Desi. Appreciate that. Folks, help us out with that. Um, We are going to take responsibility and make decisions as a pastoral team. But your input is uh, also a part of that equation. We obviously are looking at... We want to
1: hear how you're feeling.
0: Absolutely. So we are... We are looking at the laws of the land. Those are our first line of authority. We're not going to, as we have been consistent over this period of time, we are not going to go against the laws of the land. Nothing within them so far that we have seen violates anything within Scripture. This is about our witness. This is about your safety. And uh, thank God for small groups. Thank God for hardworking pastoral team members. Thank God for the Internet and uh, all of the tools that we're using. Absolutely. So we're going to use every tool we can. And already, if you're not aware, the death rate, even though there is spikes all over the nation with regard to the sickness, the death rate is beginning to come down. And that is due to what we were hoping for, that over time, we would medically get better at responding to this disease. And so that's part of what we're trying to do is push this down the down the field far enough that when we do face a sickness, if we face it, if God allows that, that we do not look at death, but rather just having to come through that sickness. And so uh, we're trying to fi- find our way forward. Your prayers are appreciated and also your input. So help us out with that. All right. So we're in the middle this week of the second week of a series on faith and particularly faith in action. And so tonight we have a Bible study. And Desi, honestly, I cannot remember where you're going with this Bible study. So I'm excited because I don't that mean, I
1: can do anything I want.
0: I I think you could have anyway. I mean, <laughs> we don't we don't really control each other when no, it comes to we community. don't.
1: So, uh, Collectively I'm, as a team, we, we do meet every week in case you didn't know that we do meet every week and we discuss and prayerfully consider where to go next. And we try to plan a little bit ahead of time, but we don't actually script for each other what they have to do.
0: I was. That's joking. right. That's right. So I think I'm going to get out of the way and uh, turn it over to you. And then I'll I'll jump back in at the question and answer time and uh, we'll see see where we're at. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Desi, and
1: uh, take it away. Thank you. All right. So tonight, I have the privilege of bringing together our Bible study. And what we're going to talk about tonight is a continuation, as Stephen already mentioned, of this second week in our faith series. And I want to continue that discussion. And all throughout the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at faith from different angles. We've been looking at different characters in the scriptures and how they demonstrated their faith. And so tonight, I'm going to take a little bit of a different tack, and we're still going to talk about faith. But rather than exemplifying perhaps what faith is, at first, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about what faith is not. I hope throughout this series, you've come to realize, pardon me, Sorry about that, allergy season. My hope is that during this time period, you have come to see, as we've been talking through these different examples of faith, that faith is not one simple thing. When I was younger in my walk with Christ, I associated faith and this idea of faith as this powerful assertion and trust and belief no matter what and what God was doing. And faith was very one-dimensional to me in my earlier walk with Christ. And as I have continued to study and read the scriptures, quite frankly, as I have gotten older and life has knocked me around a little more, I've come to realize that faith is not one-dimensional. In fact, faith is multifaceted, Faith has many, many different aspects to it. And it's beautiful. It's rich. It has lots of different viewpoints. I won't give it away, but tomorrow night, Pastor Stephen is doing our final broadcast on faith. And he's going to present another angle that we have yet to cover on faith. And so I'm hoping throughout the last two weeks, you've seen that this biblical idea of faith is very rich. It's very multifaceted. In other words, it's got lots of different angles to it. And I tend to think of faith now as I would say a beautifully cut diamond, say a princess diamond, and you can look at it and it's beautiful, but then you shine light on it and the way that the light refracts and what it looks like will change depending on how you turn that gemstone. And in the same way, when we look at a biblical fount of faith, we can look at Abraham, we can look at Moses, we can look at Rahab, we can look at Joseph, we can look at other characters in the Bible and we'll see all these different aspects of faith. And so which one is it? Well, they're all faith, and it's shown differently throughout the scriptures depending on where you look. One of the things that I hope has become very, very clear by now is that no matter where you look in the Bible, faith is always associated with action. Please hear me say that again. Faith is associated with action. Nowhere in the scriptures is there an idea of faith, and it's simply some sort of mental ascent. It is not just this idea in your head. You don't mentally check a box and decide, I believe in God. I've made the decision. I believe in God. I believe that Jesus saved me. And that be a descriptor of biblical faith. Now, I'm not taking anything away from that. We do need to believe in God. We do need to believe that Jesus came and died for us and that he came to save us. But that alone is not biblical faith. That's a mental exercise. Biblical faith is always, 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 always carried out in action. Biblical faith is a choice and biblical faith is followed by action. I really, really like the way that Brother Moss put it last week in his Bible study on faith when he said that faith is believing in and acting on God's revealed will. And that's very, very important because I'm going to lean into that a little more tonight. Faith is always associated with action, but specifically it's believing in and acting on God's revealed will. And the reason that's important is because while faith is always associated with action, not all action is an act of faith. Every time that we make an action doesn't mean that we are exercising biblical faith. But every time that we exercise biblical faith, we will take action in some way. And so tonight, we're going to dive into the scriptures. I'm going to go ahead and share my screen in just a moment, and we're going to do a slow read, not honestly as slow as I would like to for the sake of time, but we're going to do a slow read through a couple different, actually three different passages of scripture, and I want to point out a few things. Now, tonight, I am going to be using some online resources. I'm doing this on purpose, very intentionally, so that way you can, in your own time, look this up for yourself and hopefully you can make use of these tools. Everything I'm going to show you tonight is free. It's online. It's readily available to you. All you need is some sort of device that will connect to the Internet. And so these are great resources that are available to any of us who would like to take advantage of them. So this time I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. And the first thing I want to show you is something called the Net Bible. And you've heard several of us mention this before. The Net Bible is the New English Translation. This Bible is a very, very academic, scholarly-ordered translation. It's loaded with all kinds of notes and different – it's probably the most textual note-rich English translation out there because it's going to include lots of information for people who want a lot of scholarly background. You don't have to read all of the notes. I'm not even telling you to read all the notes. But if you want to do an in-depth Bible study with a free online resource that has lots of quality, biblically accurate scholarly notes, the Net Bible, the New English Bible, is a great place to look. And you can find it for free online at netbible.org. So the first passage we're going to look at tonight is the temptation of Jesus. And we're going to be reading out of Matthew chapter 4. We also find it's parallel in Luke chapter four, and we find it in Mark chapter one. Mark chapter one contains the temptation of Jesus, but it's a very flash in the pan, brief account, blink and you'll miss it. It's got just a few verses. And basically it says Jesus went out in the wilderness. He fasted for 40 days and he was tempted. Yay. And then it moves on. Matthew and Luke really dive into this story and begin to walk through it. So why am I starting with Jesus And his temptation in the wilderness in a discussion about faith, because I want to demonstrate what faith is not and how Jesus responds to Satan and his temptation. So let's begin. Matthew chapter four, verse one says, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So notice that the spirit is prompting Jesus to go out into the wilderness. What was the wilderness? I'm not going to take time to read all this, but you'll notice there's a little blue one right here. A little teaching moment. That blue one corresponds on this right panel to these notes. One, two, three, four. You can see their number. So everywhere you see a little blue number up here, it corresponds to a note over on the side. So if you want to know more about what the wilderness was as described in the gospel accounts, you could come back later to the Net Bible and you could read this paragraph as it describes a little bit about what the wilderness was. Matthew 4, verse 2, it says, after he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was famished. (laughs) No kidding. I am famished, or at least I feel extremely hungry if I skip half a day. If I don't eat from lunchtime one day until breakfast the next morning, I feel famished. It's been 40 days. And folks, yes, he was God become human, but he was still human. Jesus is tired. Jesus is weak with hunger. Jesus is extremely, extremely hungry. He is famished at this point. And of course, at this low point, in a state of weakness, this is when the devil, the accuser, The liar. This is when he shows up to tempt Jesus. Verse 3 says, The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. So he starts much like we see in the garden where he talks to Eve and he says, Did God really say that? The tempter shows up to Jesus and says, If you really are the Son of God, then turn these stones into bread. Remember, Jesus has not eaten in 40 days. And his response to this is, it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He doesn't fall for the trick. Instead, he quotes scripture. What scripture does he quote? Well, if you notice, there is a little blue seven. And if we scroll over here to verse, or excuse me, footnote number seven, it says that Jesus was making a quotation from Deuteronomy 8.3. And you'll notice it's blue over here as well. If you hover over, when you do this on your own time, you can pull up Deuteronomy 8.3, which says, so he humbled you by making you hungry and then feeding you with unfamiliar manna. He did this to teach you that humankind cannot live by bread alone, but also by everything that comes from the Lord's mouth. And so Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 8.3 when he is tempted by Satan. Now we go to the second temptation. The devil then took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point in the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Now, it says the highest point in the temple. You notice there's a note there. I won't take time to read it. Basically, this note, and you can read it for yourself later, says that the the Greek words used there are a little vague. What is the highest point? Well, it probably helped to know a little bit about the temple. The temple we're talking about is sometimes referred to as the second temple. Most commonly, it's referred to as Herod's temple. So what did Herod's temple look like? Well, you can go to Google and you can just Google, Bing, Herod's temple, and you can click on images. And so I've done an image search on Herod's temple, and you can see lots of little models of it. And you will notice that the temple proper is this taller looking building. And I'm going to scroll down here. Here's a good picture. I want to click on this one. Because if you look over here to this side, this is a 3D rendering in a map. And what you'll see is that it was at the top of a hill. And so, if, if Jesus is at a high point in the temple, and this wall, you can't see it in this picture, but it's at the top of a the hill, there's a drop on the other side of this wall. It is entirely possible that if he was at the highest point of the temple on the back side of this wall, which overlooks a cliff face, then he's easily 400 feet up in the air, at least 400. The note says possibly 450 feet up in the air. This is the equivalent of being 44, 45 stories up in the air. And so imagine Jesus is taken way up high. And so now Satan tries to trick him and tempt him. And he says, jumping back into verse six, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And with their hands, they will lift you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So this is the Desilugo paraphrase. Satan takes Jesus up to a very high point, and he's now looking over a cliff face, and he says, oh yeah, well, if you're the son of God, and then Satan flips it back on Jesus. He tried to appeal to his pride, and he said, if you're really the son of God, why don't you turn those stones into bread? Jesus responds by quoting scripture. So here, notice this, Satan quotes scripture back to him. The attempter quotes scripture back, and you can find where it's found. Psalm 91 verse 11 For he will order his angels to protect you in all you do. And Psalm 91 verse 12. They will lift you up on their hands so you will not slip or fall on a stone. Now you can read in the footnote here where the Net Babel points out that yes, Satan is quoting from Psalm 91, but he's taken the verses out of context. So even when Satan uses scripture, he's still trying to twist it. Satan tempts Jesus to prove that he's God by saying, jump. Demonstrate to me your power. If you really are who you say you are, then when you jump, the angels will catch you. You won't fall to the ground. Scripture even says so. And then he misquotes out of context, Psalm 91, verse 11 and verse 12. Verse 7 of Matthew chapter 4. But Jesus said to him, once again, it is written, you are not to put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus quotes back to him. From Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, you must not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. So Jesus, again, does not fall for this temptation. And then finally, the third temptation, verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their grandeur. And he said to him, I will give you all of these things if you will throw yourself to the ground and if you will worship me. And then you can read the notes down here about what it means to worship. It's not just simply the idea of bowing down, but it's an admittance. It's a posture. It's a position. It's a way to publicly acknowledge that someone is of higher rank than you. Satan isn't just saying, bow down and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. Satan is saying, put yourself lower than me. Acknowledge me as more powerful than you, and I will give you the kingdom of the world. Luke chapter four also contains the parallel of this. I like one of the things that Luke's account points out. Verse five of Luke chapter four, it says, Then the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in a flash all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to you, and he said to him, excuse me, to you, I will grant this whole realm and the glory that goes along with it. Now watch this, for it has been relinquished to me and I can give it to anyone I wish. So then if you worship me, all this will be yours. Why do I point out Luke's account in Luke chapter four? I love that little added detail, how Satan admits that this power, he's not making this up. He has been given authority over the world. Paul in Ephesians refers to him as the prince of the power of the air. He does have power and authority on this earth. But in his conversation with Jesus, keep in mind, this is God become human. He admits that this power he has has been relinquished. That means it's been handed over to him and it's a temporary place. So he says, look, somebody else gave me these kingdoms and I'll give them over to you if you'll acknowledge me as more powerful and superior to you. I just love that little note. So even when he's offering and tempting Jesus power that he has, it's borrowed power that he has that came from another source of authority. Let's jump back to Matthew chapter four, verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, go away, Satan, for it is written, you are to worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Where is that a quote from? Deuteronomy 6.13 says, you must revere the Lord your God, serve him and take oaths using only his name. And then verse 11 of Matthew chapter 4, then the devil left him and angels came and began ministering to his needs. I'm going to stop sharing my screen for a few minutes. We'll come back to that. So why start here with this story of Jesus' temptation if we're having a discussion about faith? And specifically tonight, I told you that we're going to talk about what faith is not. Here's why. I believe that this story of Jesus and his temptation out in the wilderness is an excellent example of how Satan tries to tempt Jesus to do something. Jesus does not fall for it, and in doing so, he demonstrates to us what faith is not. Faith is always demonstrated in action in the biblical text, but not all action equals faith. Here's why I'm pointing this out. There have been times in my life in dealing with other ministers and even fellow peers of mine, even myself on occasion, I have wanted to do something for God or I felt a desire or a burden for something. And I I have wanted to do this. I've prayed about it. I've talked to God. And if we're careful, what we'll do is we'll pray and we'll talk to God. And we'll say, God, I see this need, or I have this burden for this thing, or I want to go do this. And we usually justify it and wrap it up in spiritual language. And it's for your kingdom. And this would, you know, advance the gospel or whatever else. And I'm going to go do fill in the blank. And then we go take a walk off a cliff. And we say, God, catch me. I'm doing this for you. And if anybody asks us what we're doing, we're saying, we're exercising faith. And we've stepped off of this high and We're waiting for God to catch us. And that's just like what we see Satan tempting Jesus to do at the top of that pinnacle at the tower, or excuse me, at the temple in Jerusalem, where he says, If you're really God, if you really have this power, then step off. And Satan even quotes scripture to him. Now he takes it out of context, but he quotes from Psalm 91 and he says, Step off. The scriptures say the angels will catch you, you won't smash your foot. But God didn't tell Jesus to step off the temple. The spirit didn't direct for this to happen. It was a temptation. And likewise, in our own life, there will be times when we are tempted to do things. Maybe it comes from the enemy. Perhaps it comes from us. It may even be a good idea. It may be a wonderful dream. You may have the right motivations. It really could be for God's glory and his kingdom. But if, and please Newark, hear me, if God has not directed you to do so, and you're ready to take a wild, reckless step, and you're going to step off that pinnacle, and the Holy Spirit has not prompted you, and the Lord has not spoken this to you, there is a very high likelihood that you're going to end up falling and hurting yourself. And there have been multiple times in my ministry where I have seen people get hurt by actions they took and they say they're stepping out in faith but they weren't directed by God to do so. And so when they step out they fall. And then they get hurt and then later they're at a very low point or they may have a crisis of faith or their their spirit is crushed and they and they think, "Where are you, God? What happened? Why did you let this happen to me?" And sometimes when we do these actions and we step out and we say, "God, catch me." He's gracious to us, and he does. And sometimes when we step off that pinnacle and God has not directed us, we fall. You would think it was crazy. If I got up on the roof of my house and we broadcast live from there and I said, I want to show you all what real faith looks like. So tonight I've climbed up onto the roof of my house and to demonstrate what real faith is, I just, I believe that God is going to catch me and I'm not going to get hurt and I'm going to jump off the second story roof of my house. And, and as we're broadcasting live, God is going to catch me and I'm not going to touch the ground. And that would terrify all of you. And you think that is absolutely ridiculous. Desi, what are you doing? We wouldn't do that in the physical realm. But if we're not careful, there are times in the spiritual realm where we do some equivalent of that. We take some wild, crazy, reckless leap, and we say, God, catch me. I'm exercising faith. But the biblical definition of faith, as Brother Moss so clearly demonstrated last week, is when we believe in and we act on God's revealed will. If God has not directed you to do something, and you're ready to take some reckless action, it's very likely that you're not stepping out in faith. You're just simply stepping out. And sometimes when we just simply step out, we get hurt. And the more reckless the action, the more badly we can get hurt. Now, let me balance all of this by saying there are times when God does call us to step out in faith, to use that church language, step out in faith. And he's calling us to do something big and bold and audacious, and it's scary as all get out. But you know that God has spoken to you. You know that the Spirit has directed you to do that. And when that is the case, step out, my friend. That is exercising faith. But you preemptively deciding that you're going to do something and then having a quick prayer and saying, God, support me in this and stepping out without his direction. That is not exercising faith. Just as Jesus was tempted by Satan to step off that high pinnacle and demonstrate his power, and he resisted that temptation because it did not come from God, there are times in our life where we are tempted or we have ideas to step out in some wild, crazy, bold, audacious way. And if it didn't come from God, there's a high likelihood that we'll get hurt. Hear me. There are times when God is very gracious to us. And he catches us. And he can even redirect our course as we're in action. But don't live life that way do live a life of faith. Please hear me. I am not saying not to live in faith. I am not saying not to act in obedience, but it's dependent on God's revealed will. It's dependent on God telling you to do so first. So let's jump back in. I'm going to share my screen. We're going to read a couple more biblical passages that demonstrate in the New Testament, this wild, crazy step of faith. Here we are in Acts chapter 13. I'm going to jump over to the New Living Translation because I don't need textual notes for this. I just simply want to share these stories. This is often referred to as Paul's first missionary journey. And so starting in Acts 13, verse 1, this is out of the New Living Translation. It says, Among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas and Simeon, called the black man, Lucius from Cyrene, Menaean, the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas and Saul. One day, watch this, please don't miss this. Acts 13, verse two. One day, as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, they did not come to this decision by themselves. They were worshiping, they were fasting, implied with fasting is prayer. So I'm gonna say they were praying. And the Holy Spirit said, Appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. So watch this. After more fasting and prayer, because they were just called into something wild and crazy and radical and new. This church is already cutting edge. You want a wonderful message? Go back and listen to Stephen's message. You can find it in our media archive on which church are you? Are you going to be Jerusalem or Antioch? The Antioch church for its time, this was the cutting edge church. This was the one reaching out into the Gentile world. This was the mixed congregation church. This was the church that was trying new and crazy things. This is the church where Barnabas went and got that young radical zealot. Saul, who had persecuted the church before, and he brought him back, and they began training him in ministry. And now they're there, and they're working in this environment, and they're doing weird, crazy, wild, faithful things that Jerusalem is not trying. And in an atmosphere of worship, during a time of prayer and worship and fasting, the Spirit speaks and says, appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work that I have called them. And so after more prayer and fasting, The men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. And thus begins a journey that later in the book of Acts is described as men who turned their world upside down. The most radical missionary, the most zealous evangelist of all time for Christianity, started out of Antioch and took this crazy step of faith where he and his traveling companion Barnabas go out and they are going to broadcast this gospel message to the world. They're going to reach out into Gentile communities, but it started after prayer and fasting when the Holy Spirit directed them to do them. And now one more passage, because I know I'm out of time. We're going to jump over to Acts 16. We're going to start in at verse six. Now we're on what's referred to as Paul's second missionary journey. This time Silas is his missionary partner. Verse six of Acts 16 says, next, Paul and Silas traveled through the area of Phrygia and Galatia. Watch this, because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. The province of Asia, as in the Roman province of Asia in the ancient world, not as in the Asian continent, but today what we would call modern Turkey. The Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. These men are on a missionary journey. They are doing God's will. They're seeking after his will. They are planting new churches. They want to go establish churches in this new area. They are trying to get into the Roman province of Asia, again, modern day Turkey. And the spirit says, no, don't go there. Don't try to start a church in that location. So watch verse seven, then coming to the borders of Mysia, they headed north for the province of Bithynia, but again, the spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. So instead they went on through Mysia to the seaport of Troas. So twice in this little passage, they have tried to go somewhere and the spirit said, no, don't do that. Don't head in that direction. And so these men are acting in faith. They're actively on a missionary journey. They are working to establish new churches. And as they're doing the work of the gospel, the spirit says, no, don't start that. No, don't go preach in that area. And they listened. And verse nine, that night, Paul had a vision and a man from Macedonia and northern Greece was standing there pleading with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us. Who was calling them? God was calling us to preach the good news there. So twice the spirit has prevented them from going somewhere. Now they're seeking direction. Quite frankly, they don't know what to do. We don't know how long they paused, but that's a good life lesson. When you don't know what to do, pause. Continue what you know to do, but don't try something new. And they waited for the spirit to speak to them. And once they were sure that the spirit was directing them, they stepped out in faith again. So biblical faith is always associated with action. Biblical faith involves us stepping out. Biblical faith calls us to look forward. One last resource I want to share with you before we end. This is the Bible Project. You've heard me mention this before. I love what this company is doing. They put out all sorts of wonderful short animation videos that walk through different scriptural passages. They give books of the Bible overviews. They do different um, word pictures and word studies. I'm a very visual person, so I like this medium and the way that they presented this. And so last week, I was reading in the Psalms, and I actually continued on into this week. And on Monday, I was watching their video on the Psalms. So I'm at the Bible project and I just pulled it up. I'm not going to play this video, but they have a short little video here. It's about nine minutes long and it walks through the book of Psalms. And towards the end of that video, I love this quote and I wrote it down. It says, biblical faith is forward looking. It looks to the promise of God's future messianic kingdom. Biblical faith is forward looking. Biblical faith is always associated with action. But not all actions are an exercise of faith. There may be times in your life where the spirit says no, or there may be times in your life where you need to wait for the spirit to direct you. And so having said that, Stephen, if you want to go ahead and rejoin me, I know I went just a little bit long tonight. But we'll go ahead and we'll begin to open it up for questions. And so if you're watching either on YouTube or on Facebook and you want to interact with us, please go ahead and submit your questions now. You can begin it with the word question in all caps. And we want to emphasize, and if nothing else, hear me say this tonight. Biblical faith is associated with action, but not all action is a step of faith. The key difference is biblical faith is when you act on God's revealed
0: will. All right excellent thank you desi Mm -hmm. excellent bible study everyone i hope that you have enjoyed it and uh, as you are typing in questions i will start uh, proctoring or moderating those for you so let's start with an easy one desi okay Um, we've got a question that asks do you think jesus was ashamed after he was tempted so it looks like somebody's been paying attention to a preceding weekend series and uh has a question about do you feel after having been tempted was Jesus ashamed?
1: I will readily admit anything I'm about to say is a suggestion. But you asked, what do I think? Oftentimes when we read the scriptures, I know at times I struggle with this too. I see Jesus as this amazing supernatural being, which he is. Scripture makes it clear that he's God become human. But the New Testament writers, and specifically John, takes painstaking details to point out, yes, he's God become human, but he's still very, very human. And so Jesus is tempted. Scripture says he was tempted in all points like we are. I don't think this was a fake mental exercise where Jesus was checking a box and he's like, yeah, I got to go through this. so That way later people can see me as a good role model for them. No, no, no. It says he was tempted. If it wasn't a temptation, let's go back to the pinnacle. If it really wasn't a temptation, Scripture would not have said that. So for however long it lasted, Satan touched Jesus' pride as a human. And there was a moment somewhere inside of him where it was, oh, yeah, I'll show you. I'll show you who I really am. And he was tempted to demonstrate his power. But he had to step back. And he kept control. And he did not fall for the temptation. So your question was, was Jesus ashamed after he was tempted? Unfortunately, the scripture doesn't tell us. And I don't know if he was tempted. Stephen, or excuse me, not tempted, but ashamed. And Stephen's welcome to jump in. If I'm just off the top of my head giving my opinion, whether or not it was this example, I do think there was times in Jesus' life, because he was human like us, where he felt shame. Feeling shame in and of itself is not sin. It's not evil. Stephen, do you want to add anything to that? Uh, Actually, no. I,
0: I think you uh, handled that question well. So let's uh, let's move on to another one. All right. Um, what do you have to say? Uh, this is another question came in. What do you have to say on the theory that some people have in regards to faith as a mustard seed? Meaning that they would say that faith as a mustard seed uh, needs to, just like a mustard seed is planted and grows into something big, therefore our faith needs to be planted, and the quantity of faith
1: grows as well. <laughs> okay, that was a mouthful of a question, wasn't it? Let's see if yes, I can, it was. Let's see if I can unpack this a little more. So I love the story of Jesus describing faith as a mustard seed. And I will readily admit up front, if you've ever listened to Pastor Stephen teach on this, I absolutely agree with him and lean towards that. I think we get hung up on the, you can cast mountains into the sea. Okay. I don't think that's the point of what Jesus was saying. Jesus was using mustard seed, this little tiny common plant in their area. And he was pointing out that all you need is a little bit of faith. And I will share this as my opinion, but I agree with Pastor Stephen. I think more than anything, Jesus was demonstrating because the disciples, let me back up. You got to put scripture in its context. This conversation started with the disciples asking him, teach us how to increase our faith. Okay, so it starts with the disciples wanting more faith than they feel they have at the time. And Jesus' response is that if you got a little bit, it's enough. I can work with that. So just within the context of the passage, I do not believe that it's trying to demonstrate that faith keeps getting larger and larger and larger. I don't think that's where Jesus was, and I'm sharing my opinion. I don't think that's where Jesus was going because this whole conversation started with the question about how do we increase our faith? And instead of giving the disciples a prescription on how to increase their faith, he tells them, however much you got, I can work with that. It's enough. Now, having said that, I do believe that in life, as we take steps of faith, in other words, as we put into action what God has revealed for us to do, and he meets us, and we see God meet us over and over and over and over again, in some ways, at times, it gets easier to do those actions. But here's the thing about faith. God keeps calling us to do bigger and bigger things. He keeps calling us to take bigger and bigger steps. And so pragmatically, just speaking from experience, and I see Stephen nodding his head as well, in your walk with God, he'll keep calling you to bigger and bigger things. And so you can look back and something that seems scary to you in your early walk with God, you're now like, I got this. I can do this because I've seen God demonstrate it. But then he calls you to do something bigger. He calls you to jump farther. He calls you to go out in that wilderness farther than you've gone before. And so we at least proverbially say it takes more faith because it, it seems like a bigger action and it's scary to us. So in a very pragmatic way, I do think that for a lack of a better word, we could say that our faith grows over time or if nothing else, maybe not grows, but it's strengthened over time as we continue to be obedient to what God has called us to do. But I don't think if we're going back to the text, the point of the text was that Jesus was saying, take seed faith and watch it grow bigger. I do think it grows bigger. What his point was, however much you got. It's enough, even if it's as small as a mustard seed, I can work with that.
0: Yeah. And while while faith does seem to grow, Desi, mm-hmm. uh, because the steps become larger. Uh, the vision becomes larger. hmm. Uh, it really hasn't grown in relation to what you have to do. In fact, uh, it, it, many of the things that earlier on, when you look back and you say, oh, I could do that now because my yeah. faith has grown. Actually, your faith hasn't grown. Your experience has grown. And, and maybe thank you for explaining
1: my language. That's probably a better way to put that.
0: Yeah. yeah, our experience has grown. So I remember Regina and I, when we first got married, we were <laughs> very early on. I've told this story before. And we're, we've been saving for months, okay? I'll throw dad under the bus. My dad was very conservative about how he paid. He did not want his son to get a big head. He did not want the church to think I was getting preferential treatment. And so he was extremely judicious about how I was compensated. How Very much
1: conservative, would. very judicious. I can name another word for this that you're dancing around, but.
0: Uh, we'll, we'll don't name it because dad, dad might come and get you for it. But uh, <laughs> but the point is, is that he was very <laughs> careful. So Regina and I had been saving for, for months, uh, and it wasn't for something uh, frivolous, but we've been saving for months for something that we needed. And we we had saved and we're very close to having a thousand dollars. Okay. $1,000 that we had saved up. And I remember sitting yeah. in a service and the Lord speaking to us and and I leaned over to my wife and I love my wife because she has always been in lockstep with our giving. We've always been in agreement with that. We fought about everything else. But when it comes to giving, we not generosity, nope, not generosity, thankful for her her parents, her heritage, my parents, my heritage. And so I leaned over and I said, babe, I feel like and I'm like my heart's dropping because it, it was hard and we were we were scraping. We were trying to get this together. Mm-hmm. And I felt to give this thousand dollars. It was actually the Albert Stewart, who was a missionary to Liberia. And so I pulled out, those were the days of a checkbook. I pulled out my checkbook. I wrote the check and we put it in the offering. In fact, Brother Stewart was so shocked by it. He went and checked with my dad and said, is this check good? Do I cash it? And He said, if he wrote is it, it. Is going to
1: bounce? Good. He's asking your dad, is this going to bounce?
0: Or yeah. is it, should I give this back? Is this something that, you know, is done in, impetuously or or in, in this kind of thing? Ladies and gentlemen, I can tell you flat out right now. Okay. Right now, God speaks to me and say, give $1,000 to a missionary. I don't even blink.
1: But it was a little bigger 25 years ago, wasn't it?
0: Absolutely. I don't, I don't need, I don't even need, know that I need faith. Uh, You know, when I first started paying my tithes and is God going to be faithful or or I think I I needed faith, but now I don't need faith because I have experience, but it's a whole other ball game. your,
1: Your experience has grown over time.
0: That's exactly right. But I can tell you what, when God looks at me and says, now you and your dad have been faithful and you've, you've built a reserve, spend it down invest it back into my, into my fields. Now that requires some faith because I don't have that experience.
1: <laughs> now. Yeah. Yeah. So let me jump back in before we go on. Cause this is such a good point, And I want to, I want to hammer it a little harder if that's all good.
0: right. Uh, Absolutely.
1: I like how you've refined what I said, and I appreciate you jumping in because now that I'm thinking back through what I said, to be more precise, what I was describing is exactly what Stephen pointed out. It's our experience. It's my experience over time that's grown. But faith, faith is that step. Let me be more precise. Faith is that choice because faith is always a choice. Faith is that choice to act on what God has revealed to you even when you don't know the outcome. There's no guarantee with faith. And so whether that's giving $1,000 in an offering that you've saved up to pay some other thing, or it's spending out a reserve, or it's moving cross country to go start a master's program and selling your house and resigning your position as an assistant pastor at a church, like my wife and I did years ago, okay? That action is still our choice to act on what God asked us to do without any guarantee of the outcome. And that choice to act without knowing the outcome is still the same kind of thing. I don't know. And the more I think about it, I don't know that my faith has ever actually grown bigger. My experience my life experience, my my knowledge of God's word has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, and I am blessed for it. And my relationship with him is re- richer and deeper today than it's ever been as a result of these experiences. But he still calls us to act. And he doesn't right. promise us the outcome. Or there may be times where he tells you to do something, and he says, if you will do X, I will do Y. But Y makes no sense, and you can't do the math on it. And you can't figure it out. And that's still an act of faith because you have to choose to step out and do X. God has told you he will do Y. But you have no idea how to get from X to Y. And mathematically, in algebra, that works to be more, if I'm going to stick with the alphabet, it's more like God says, step out and do P and I'll meet you at X. And you have no idea how to get from P to X. And where is R-S-T-U-V-W? And you have no idea. But you know that God has called you to step out. He's called you into some action and you choose to do that. That choice, that thing in the pit of your stomach that makes you pause. Because notice, I love in Acts 13 how it says they're praying and fasting. God says, separate Paul and Barnabas. So what do they do? They pray and fast some more because there was a pause. that, That pause within you that goes... Is this real? Did God actually say that? That little moment of doubt or whatever it is, and then you choose. It's always a choice to act. That doesn't change. And those steps feel bigger and bigger and more and more crazy. And and, and they feel wilder as as you continue to grow in God. But it's still that step. And so faith in that regard doesn't change all throughout our walk with God. That's right. That's right it's bigger
0: yeah i i love i love football it's a horrible sport for the body but i love i love throwing a football i love seeing uh, seeing footballs work and so the analogy for me is is i think that god is many times like a quarterback and he tells us the pattern and we run this pattern and we have no guarantee that he's going to throw that football but he's counting on us to get to where he tells us to go Mm -hmm. and have his timing. football is here where it's supposed to be. So right on the heels of that, we have a question that is, is it wrong to ask God for more faith to make major moves? So I actually, I, I almost skipped this question, but I think it fleshes out even more what we're dwelling on here. Is it wrong to ask God? And if it's, and if it is wrong or it's not wrong, what, what, what is the, what is, is it appropriate? What is, how do you characterize asking God for more faith to make major
1: moves? first off, it is never wrong to have an additional conversation with God. I don't ever want to discourage you from talking to God. So is it wrong to ask God fill in the blank? Well, just the act of talking to God. Let's say your question is misguided. If you're really talking to God and having a conversation, which means you speak and then you wait to hear what he responds. If the question's wrong, then God will help you and guide you and redirect the question. I think when we say more faith, it's 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 just our limited language. And what you're likely talking about is what Stephen and I have been kicking back and forth for the last 10 minutes as we talk about experience growing. I don't think it's wrong to talk to God. Maybe maybe I wouldn't word it as saying, God, I need more faith. But I absolutely hear me. It is totally appropriate to speak to God. And he says something to you. And then you come back to God and you say this really scares me. This is big. Absolutely. I'm I, I'm uncomfortable with this. And as you grow more and more comfortable talking to God, there have been times in my life, Stephen brags about this. I don't know that I brag, but there have been times in my life where I've just said, I, I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I think Stephen delights in telling God, I don't want to do that. I don't know that I delight in it, but it is appropriate to come back and, God and say, God, I heard you say to do fill in the blank and this scares me or I, I don't even know how I'm going to, God, would you help me with this? Would you walk me through this? Would you see Desi? I, I think that was God.
0: I think that was, I think that was God calling you on that. I think he was, he was calling to, to uh,
1: I'm pretty sure that's a telemarketer, but, <laughs> but that's all right. So I do not think it's ever inappropriate to have a conversation with God. As far as saying, God, give me more faith, and and God understands our limited language. I don't think that he's going to come back to you and say, well, actually, faith is always faith, and it doesn't grow, and you've asked me the wrong way. So when you figure out the proper way to word this question, then I'll respond to you. God doesn't do that. He, He meets us at where we're at. So even if more faith is a limited way of describing it, he knows what we mean. Stephen, you want to add anything to that?
0: I'd only add one thing, which kind of ties into the next question a little bit, but uh-huh. uh, perhaps a word that would help us is is perhaps we're not asking for more faith, we're actually saying God. And I want I don't want to steal tomorrow night's message, which I, I
1: was kind of doing. I I thought about it. See, Stephen and I know where we're going tomorrow night, and if you just heard me answer that, and you're like, he kind of sidestepped that one. Tune in tomorrow night.
0: But <laughs> I, I think I think a word that would help is God. Help me to trust more. I think trust is very much tied up in faith. Faith is in action, but trust is perhaps the feeling we're looking for, that which allows us to become peaceful and calm in the midst of (laughs) a crazy circumstance. And so I think that might be a helpful word to to contemplate and think about there. So tying into our fruit of the spirit that we've been studying over this last trimester, we have a question that comes in that says, is faith part of love? And uh, they take their inspiration from a Torn Wells song that says, "Love is action." So, is faith part of love?
1: I'm forgive me. I'm trying to connect the two and make sure I understand the question right. Um, they both involve action. So let me take a little side trail here. It is a modern. And when I say modern, I'm using that in the technical sense of the word as in post-enlightenment for you students of history. It is a modern conception that we can somehow separate our mental thoughts from what we do with our body. And when it comes to our Christian service, that it's somehow up here in our head and it's separated from our actions. So when it comes to faith, when it comes to love, when it comes to any of the fruit of the spirit, in fact, when it comes to pretty much anything related to the kingdom of God and what we see in the scriptures, it's always associated with action. Nowhere. I challenge you. If you think you can find it, please come back and talk to me. I challenge you to find anywhere, anywhere in scripture that doesn't involve some action on our part as we respond to God. Nowhere in scripture is there any sort of response to God that's all in your head. It may start there, but it always involves action. And so real love is demonstrated in action. Obedience is demonstrated in action. Faith is demonstrated in action. So in that sense, I can see how you might tie them together because real love is action. Real faith is action. Real obedience is action. But I still see them as as distinct things, both necessary, both important, but distinct. Okay, let me
0: ask two questions kind of tied together a little bit. Sure. How can we best encourage our friends and our families to have faith when it seems they may not have much in trying times? And then right alongside of that is how do we support those when they may have stepped out in faith and were hurt? probably because it wasn't under God's instruction from the beginning. Uh, How do do we both encourage people to step out in faith, to hear the voice of God, to have faith? And yet, how do we also encourage them when perhaps they stepped out within their own mind, within their own, and it wasn't under God's direction? It's kind of two sides of the same coin.
1: So both of those involve, because here's another descriptor of faith that we see, again, going back to action. You're going to hear me say this over and over and over another way that faith talking in that broader scope of faith and is we see this multiple times in scripture as it's described as a walk. A walk of faith. And so when you are supporting family members, friends, fellow brothers and sisters, and you're trying to encourage them to take a step of faith or they have taken a step of faith. And by the way, sometimes we take a step of faith. And God did tell us to do it and we still get hurt, but it's not because we didn't step out of faith. It's because our expectations weren't met. We anticipated a different outcome. And that's another topic for another time that's related to this. Sometimes God does speak to us and tell us, take this action. And then we step out in faith and take that action. But the outcome is not what we anticipated. And then we're hurt and we're disappointed because what just happened here? Well, you did what God told you to do, but he didn't respond the way that you expected. And so you may come across a, a scenario where you're encouraging a brother or sister or a friend, a neighbor, a family member, someone, and they did step out of faith. And God really did tell them to do something, but they're hurt because God didn't respond the way that they expected him to. But whether it's that, or they just took a leap and then asked God after they took the leap, even if it's that, we walk with people. And so when you're encouraging people to step out in faith, you be an encourager, you be part of their life, you walk with them, you call and you check on them, you pray with them. One of the things I love about the analogy of a walk is that it doesn't say sprint. And there are times when we run Paul talks about running this race, but there's a lot of walk language, which is good, because sometimes faith, we tend to associate faith with like the big crazy jump off the pinnacle kind of moments, but a lot of faith is putting one foot in front of the other. And you getting up each day, and you're just doing what you know is right. And you're trusting that at the end of this journey, because remember, I like this quote from the Bible Project, biblical faith is forward-looking. So our faith walk looks down the road towards our eventual goal, our outcome, eternity with Jesus. And there are many days where biblical faith is just putting one foot in front of the other, and you just walk. And so getting people to live a life of faith, encouraging people, you come and you walk with them. You've got a friend or a family member or someone, you know, a brother or sister, and they've stepped out in faith and the outcome didn't end up like they thought. Don't try to justify it. This is another topic for another time, but I've learned you don't need to defend God. He does not need you to defend him. You don't need to rationalize it. In fact, you'll probably cause more damage than good. You just come alongside and you say, I am so sorry. I, I hurt with you. Is there anything I can do? And maybe there's not. And maybe it's just your gift of presence. Does that help, Stephen? Yeah. Answer both
0: sides. This is is unfair. You got one minute left, and I got like three big questions. So I'm gonna I'm gonna lightning round you. I'm gonna push you into it. So first two are kind of linked. So how, whenever we're being tempted with scripture being twisted, whether by somebody else or by the devil or by our own mind, how, how do we? determine whether that scripture is being tempted. And then right alongside of that, does God ever direct us to take steps of faith that may place us in opposition to authorities within our lives? How does authorities and the word and how does all of that interplay? And then there's acts of faith, which many times God is going outside the boundaries of what we feel comfortable and safe with. How do we distinguish those? How do we know when it's him and when we're actually. Well, you burned up my
1: minute just asking the questions, but I know. So let me, I'm not a Ross, so I'm not good at the lightning. Yes, no answers, but here we go. This is why, and hear me. This is why you must, you must, you must, you must get in the word and read it for yourself. Satan quoted Psalm 90. He quoted scripture to Jesus when he tempted him. Now he took it out of context. Why did Jesus not fall for it? Because Jesus knew the scriptures. So you must dig in it for yourself. You must learn the scriptures for yourself. So when you are tempted, or even if it were an authority or someone who comes to you, who you respect, and they throw scripture at you, if it's out of context, you're going to know that if you know your Bible, everyone must be a student of scripture. That does not mean everyone goes to seminary, but every disciple of Christ must be a student of scripture. So that's how you help guard with that. And then secondly, the question about authority, what happens and you end up stepping out and it it looks like you're going against authority. That is an awful, awful place to be. And I have been there. And most of us somewhere in our walk with God are gonna end up crossing swords with someone in authority who we respect, who's in a position of spiritual authority, but they see things differently. And you pray for grace and you pray for humility and you pray that you are able to have a conversation with that person. And you say, I love you and I respect you. this is what God has asked me to do. And if you are certain and you are confident, this is what God is asking you to do. God's voice trumps human authority. Rarely are they in conflict, but sometimes they are. And when they are, God's voice trumps human authority. And when that happens, you pray, you pray a lot for God to give you wisdom and guidance on how to handle that situation. And you treat that person in authority with grace and dignity and mercy.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And hopefully church, we, the pastoral team will not ever place you in that position because there are times where we may tell you what we feel strongly, but in the end, we are trying to maintain that you have that direct relationship with God. We do not view ourselves as high priests. We do not view ourselves as in control of the church and, and we are all, we all stand humbly at the foot of the cross and underneath of the word. Remember the statement I say all the time, truth bows, bows to, to no, no one. one. Truth bows to no one. All right, the last lightning question. I got to do it or one of the little ones is going to be mad at me. There's two of them, in fact, two little ones that are asking the same question. Basically, if God knew that he was going to be tempted, which it seems he would because he's looking ahead why did he have to be tempted or did he know what he was going to do? How did this all work? Now, Desi, you got to, in 15 seconds, answer the whole thing of free will and time. Go.
1: I can't. I'm <laughs> so sick. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Roshka, where were the dinosaurs? And I get, can you explain <laughs> free will and temporal ra- reality? All right, all
0: right. So here's what I'll do. What all you right, got to sure. do? No, no, no. It's really simple. You just need to talk to Dinah and Jasmine Tatro. They're the two that are asking those questions, and uh, I'm kind of proud. Two little girls. Well, one of them's a little older, so she's well, probably one not one of them. Or a little
1: yeah, girl, one of them's but, one of them's a little closer to a teenager now. But yeah, there's, exactly. There's but questions. they both
0: were, they're both asking this question of how did Jesus as being God, how does his foreknowledge intersect with then this temptation, this unknown peace? So, so I'm uh, giving
1: one of my favorite answers. And hear me young ladies, I was in my thirties before I learned this answer and I became comfortable with it. Stephen knows where I'm going. This is one of my favorite answers. And it took me till I was in my master's program until I became comfortable with this answer. And I delight in it now because I also see it as part of my faith walk with God. That is an excellent question. I don't know. And now, I am now okay with Girls, saying- his email,
0: congregation, his email is desi.lugo <laughs> at newarkupc.org. He can do better than that. I agree that's a great answer, but he can do better than that. So barrage him with an email and he'll respond to you. All. Maybe he'll post it on the new website. We expect a one-page treatise, Desi, on, on time and free will and choice and foreknowledge yeah, yeah. and how they intersect there. Ladies and gentlemen, we are out of time. We are way out of time. We Thank have had a so great night tonight. Thank you, Desi, for a great Bible study.
1: Go to our church website. Fill out that survey.
0: Absolutely. Help us out if you've got prayer requests. If you have praise reports. If you want to yeah. vote on our puppet, our sock puppet contest. Oh, Is yeah. that still live? That I? ends
1: Saturday night at ten o'clock. So get your votes in for the sock okay, puppet so contest. That's coming down in just a few days at ten p.m.
0: All right. So some little ones and some big ones are counting on your votes. There, you can. There are some with really cool. Have you looked, Stephen? I have. There's there a are really some cool really cool sock good sock
1: Some of you did some really cool things. Absolutely.
0: I was very pleased. Absolutely we're going to have a great Friday night. You don't want to miss Friday night with friends. I'll be with you tomorrow night. You've already heard that in the broadcast. Everybody, thank you for being with us. God bless you. Thanks
1: so much for joining
0: us. This ends our Wednesday night Bible study. Have a God great night, everybody. Have a good night. Good night.